Hey there, welcome to the Product Hive podcast. On this episode, we're bringing you the portfolio review discussion from our October 2021 product event, where you'll hear from Kelly Kim and Joey Chung. Kelly Kim is a senior product designer at Redfin, and Joey Chung is the director of product design at Realtor.com. A common part of any design interview is a portfolio review. This will usually entail walking through a project in your portfolio with a panel of interviewers that will question you about your work. Today's episode features mock portfolio review presentations. A big thanks to Lucid for sponsoring this meetup. So now, let's hear Kelly and Joey review design portfolios. I'll give you an overview, essentially how this event will work is each of the uh, presenters will present their portfolio work in the form of a presentation that will be about 10 minutes. And they've all, I've seen their presentations and they're incredible. Um, I'm really excited to hear them uh, talk through them. (laughs) I see Callie making a base, but after they present their work, the reviewers will provide feedback for around 10 minutes. And during that feedback session, it's really meant to be a combination of asking the presenters actual questions they would receive in a portfolio interview. So getting that aspect of practice, which is, I would find very helpful and also getting feedback on their presentation itself and really any other feedback that um, the presenters want, they can receive during that time. If there is, if we don't use up that entire 10 minutes, we'll also field questions uh, from the audience. But in addition to that, we will have a final Q and a session at the very end of the event. Amanar Saleev is going to be doing the sort of moderator role. And with that, I want to introduce our wonderful reviewers here. So we have Joey Chung, a director of product design at Realtor.com. And not Tiffany Koval. I That is wrong. We have Kelly Kim. I don't know how that happened. I'm sorry, Kelly. Your name is not Tiffany. <laughs> but we have Kelly Kim, and she's a senior product designer at Redfin. And they're both just incredible designers. Joey Chung is actually my manager. I work at realtor.com as a product designer, and she is probably one of the best managers I've ever had and an incredible design leader. And Kelly is an incredible designer at Redfin. These are competing companies, which is funny, but I've had an opportunity to check out Kelly's background and her work and was just incredibly impressed. So I'm so happy to have her here. You really have some two great reviewers today. Do y'all just want to say hi? Hi, everyone. I'm excited to be here. And this Tiffany Colver person is uh <laughs> she was the last reviewer and i literally had a template for this and didn't change the name and kelly i a solid i'm sorry well, kelly is my mortal enemy so we are coming all that favor by being here together in place <laughs> and hi everyone i'm kelly and yes the origin story is we used to be friends when we worked at verbo together but not anymore you know now we're enemies but no, Joey has been a, a longtime friend and incredible designer and, and mentor. And I'm excited to do this event with her. And we're so excited to have you. <laughs> Not Tiffany, though. <laughs> that being said, I hope I got all the presenters things correct on here. That'd be even worse. But I'd like to introduce our wonderful presenters today. And rather than me announcing for you guys, do you want to introduce yourselves in the order on the slides? So going left to right. Callie, go first. Yeah, hi, I'm Callie. I finished a boot camp this past year and I am doing part-time work at a design agency um, called Mojo, as well as like freelance and volunteering, just 
anything I can do to get experience and I'm looking for full-time work. So I'm really psyched to be here. My name is Matthew Young. My background is in architecture and I'm working on transitioning to UX design. Fantastic. Callie, I know you volunteered to go first. Okay. So Callie, I can just, do you have the ability to just share your, share your screen and take over? So I, I was a little confused because it said portfolio review, but a presentation. And so rather than share my portfolio, I'm doing a presentation on a case study from my portfolio. Again, I'm like, I'm interviewing a lot, some. So people see my portfolio and they want to talk to me. And then after they talk to me, they say, no, thanks. So I thought this would be a great um, way to um, see how I do during these, especially I think how I speak about my part in, in each project and like what I can deliver as well as visual design, which is another like weak area of mine. So I'm going to present for 10 minutes. Here we go. Everyone can see, you can see my slide, right? Okay. Thank you. Okay. So the case today I'm going to be sharing with you today is for a fabric retailer called Cork and Cloth. I uh, redesigned their existing website for a responsive uh, website for their Shopify account this past spring. The biggest problem was that Lisa, who's the stakeholder of the company, she had mostly done offline sales before COVID and obviously they needed to do a big switch up. Their online sales tripled within after March of 2020. And so they just needed to rethink how they were going to be attracting new customers that were interested in the product of these hobby crafters, as well as keeping them engaged and happy and increasing business sales. King Cloth is a specialty fabric retailer. They do cork fabric and Vlisco fabric of high quality. And so I wanted to first learn about fabric, which is not my forte, so that I could learn a little bit more about the industry. And so I started looking at different competitors, direct competitors that Lisa guided me to who are in her area, just Fabric Funhouse, So Many Creations, a different cork supply company, what they offered. People are offering sales and expertise and online classes, a plethora of different types of fabrics, obviously some really specialty cork and some are all over the place. And then indirect competitors like the box store Joanne, are people shopping at Joanne and why would they be? Joanne is offering everything under the sun. And then the other side of this scale is Lisco Fabric, which Lisa does offer. She doesn't sell much of now. She doesn't really know how to get into that. And she focuses mostly on court because of it. And so Vlisco is this other company that mostly sells this Vlisco and they're the experts. And so that's the one place that everyone goes. So what I was learning is that the people promote themselves as expertise, having a lot of sales, trying to make it really enticing for people to come in. So I wanted to talk to people who are actually sewers and find out what they do um, when they're buying fabric. So this is me being very empathetic when I'm listening to these um, in-depth interviews. And so I interviewed five different people of different tiers of sewing. Some do it professionally, some are hobbies, and some fall into the age range of what working cloth, their old demographic was, which was older women. And now they're getting younger women as well. So I tried to get an age range as well of who I was interviewing. And basically what I found out was fabric shoppers do shop online. It's not too scary, even for older people. They find it comfortable with COVID. They find it really safe, but it's also where they have most of their negative experiences because they can't feel their quality of their product. There's miscommunication, something's missing. And so most of their negative experiences happen online. 
what I found out that they need is education. So they want that expert advice. They want to be able to trust the fabric and trust the quality, even if they're buying it online. And everyone did this thing when they were, oh, I want to be able to feel it, which um, I found really, okay, how can we get people to be able to feel this stuff? And they want specialty stuff. They want boutique ambiance. No one mentioned cost. They're actually willing to put in more money into this because they want it to be special to them. Hey, if I'm going to spend three days sewing one piece of product, I want it to be quality. And so all that sales stuff, I started rethinking as well. What I did was I compiled all of these interviews into one person that's a little on the younger side because it's a new demographic for Lisa. And I shared this with her and she and her partner were really excited to have this persona for future marketing as well. They do a lot of social media and Facebook and that sort of thing. What might people be interested in? So I took those needs, I put them directly on here, as well as some goals to align with the business goals as well. And what people might find with their habits to share with Lisa as well, and just have everything nice and concise. So the project goals that kind of consolidate the business goals, where they overlap with the user goals and taking into tech of like, how is this going to go on Shopify and how are we going to implement this? I just wanted to keep three things in mind that I could keep coming back to, which is it pleasurable? Are people enjoying this, including Lisa, who is like a little timid with online? Is it easy for everyone? And does it build confidence with the SOAS and there? Will Lisa feel good in this new arena of online? Are people going to be feeling good about their purchases and wanting to be coming back? And just that confidence of UX or and design best practices, we're using good patterns and following good conventions um, or just trends. So I started with maybe the website currently does this. And so I peeked at the current website and there are some things that were lacking. And so I did just looking at heuristics of there's a lot of options. There's 100 in a row with no way to sort them out. If a product is out of stock, there's no way to find any other ones except for starting over. And that lively brand that people love about Lisa in person, she's youthful and joyous, and she's always wearing like bright blue and just really fun to be around, isn't present on here. You can barely tell this is cork fabric at all. This is the homepage here. Whoopsie. So what I wanted to do was just see how someone would flow through the very typical e-commerce workflow. And so what I've got is different pages that I need to make sure to design, as well as the actions that the user would take. And the ones I wanted to focus on were how are people going to filter out specific products so that they can shop for what they want, as well as how are we ensuring that they're going to add it to their cart? How do we make sure that they're going to be buying it? And so I wanted to make sure to apply uh, conventions and patterns that were really positive. So just how are we going to show all of the stuff that they all of this stuff, all of the fabrics that Cork and Cloth has to offer? How are we going to share product details so people have confidence in what they're buying? supplements what are other things people might want like how you would shop in a store you don't just look at one thing and then leave and then filters as i mentioned they have over 100 products and there's got to be a way that you can narrow stuff down so i created a high fidelity prototype in figma and i wanted to test it on a variety of users some people who were really familiar with the company and then a couple more who had just knew about fabric or maybe were so amateur sewists as well and i wanted to make sure it was high fidelity because that imagery was really important with were people going to be how are they going to be interacting with the website and i wanted to be able to talk it out with them and so i wanted to make sure i was there with them so we did it on zoom and what i found out was really great things. The new homepage is really simple, inviting. The little quote under homepage here is that people said, oh, it's bright, it's clean, it's friendly. These are things that Lisa prides herself on. So we've got big photos, really simple to, to shop. 
We've got imagery that I added. So rather than just one photo that you can't even tell if it's zoomed or not and no details about what anything is, if for someone was new, like they're not an expert in what's going on, we've got a variety of imagery. You can see the product in use and, and users are really into this, as well as just learning about the product details rather than having a whole new section, just throw it right on the page. The product page itself, as I mentioned, like Underneath the product, you could see other things that people might be interested in buying that were similar, as well as things that you could also buy. And in usability testing, I noticed that this was great for people who, when I asked, well, okay, what would you do now once you added something to your cart? They go, oh, I'd check out this one. Like they saw things that they were interested in. They may shop at Corgan Cloth, even if they'd never heard of it before, which was great. And then I also added reviews. She currently has an Etsy site with reviews. And so the concept to her made total sense. And so I've got reviews at the top, just, you know, so many websites have it. But what this also does is it, customers can upload information so that there's more coming in so they can shop with confidence. They can share photos so that you get inspiration as well as that true feel. So you can't feel the fabric, but hopefully you get a better idea of it. And there's more and more that you can look at here. Just building that community. I did have to adjust a couple of things. I needed to focus on some nuanced filters more. I just some basics that I thought I'd done a great job on, but I needed to get even deeper into what colors actually matter to sewists. Like cork, I thought was brown. Turns out cork is natural. And so there's a lot of different things like that. And so just getting a little bit more nuanced with those categories, as well as a positive spin on if something is out of stock, which they often are because they have such high sales of how might someone still be able to buy something that's going to be back in stock soon. And so trying, doing a little pre-order option that Lisa is currently thinking about, um, rather than it being like red, you can't buy this. And if they were, then they can keep shopping around based on what's um, similar. And so by reviewing all of this with Lisa over the, the time that I had spent doing this project, we determined that the, the design ended up being pleasurable and easy and confident, and we are ready to put it onto her Shopify site. So that is my presentation. <laughs> Perfect timing. <laughs> and was that exactly 10 minutes? No, oh, I think it was longer, actually. Um, that made it. I think you get bonus points today. Yeah. I'm sweating. Should I not say that in my interview that <laughs> I'm sweating? I think that's totally fine to say in your interview, by the way. I like when people are normal people. <laughs> All right. Kelly, do you want to go first? Yeah, I thought that was a very good presentation. I Everything was clear. I liked your storytelling. Uh, for me, I like to focus on the storytelling. Does this make sense? I did want a little bit more on the outcomes, like the impact that you had, but it's hard to do because the next step was to actually implement it on Shopify. But maybe in the usability study, it would have been cool to, oh, in the usability study before it took them this long, to do it find like to find the uh, buy button and the after uh, version, uh, we, I shaved off this much time. Something measurable, I think, will really impress your interviewers. I think from a craft perspective, I could definitely tell your strength is in UX and user interviews. I think you mentioned that you could do better on your craft before you did your presentation. I would say don't say that. <laughs> Sorry, I was telling you, but not. Okay, okay. Cool. But yeah, I could see that. But I could see that your strengths and your passion is in the discovery phase of learning about the users and the user problems. So 
I think that's okay. I know you only had 10 minutes. You couldn't add these things, but some of the things that I look for is uh, to learn a little bit about you. So you may already have this in your full presentation, but just one or two slides that talks about you. That way I could connect with you before we get into the work. And then lastly, oh, two, two last things. I would say there was one slide where you showed a workflow and you labeled it as information architecture. Uh, I would just be very careful about the vocabulary you use. When I think of information architecture, I think of site maps and taxonomy, not flows necessarily. I would just be careful of your vocabulary. And one last thing, I see the mobile view and this like hero shot, which is great. Yeah, I think it would impress your users, your interviewers, because this is an e-commerce site to have both the responsive screens like mobile and desktop, um, just to show that you can do that and you understand that interaction design patterns. But that's it from me. I think overall, great storytelling. I was there with you for every slide. <laughs> Thank you. That is awesome feedback. I really appreciate it. just want to uh, call out, I think we're supposed to ask you questions before we get feedback, <laughs> but that's for next time. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Just jumped right in. No, it's fine. I could just tell you after your presentation, my next thing was going to ask, how would you work with the engineering team whenever you move into development? Can you tell me more about the outcomes you're expecting? Like, how would you measure that you've done the right thing? How do you know that? You know, what you've designed is the right thing. So feedback in general, I really, I mean, I liked it. I thought it was a really good flow. Kelly mentioned the storytelling was really good. In terms of visual design, that is something that we are more acute on when it's a, when you're more junior in your career. And it's because we understand that a lot of the project details would not be like what it would be if you were working in a large corporation or a big design team or anything like that. But we will look at, do you have the basics down? So some of the things to look out for and stuff like your presentation and your online portfolio is consistency and your type hierarchy and sizes. One example, your next steps title here is a different color than the titles you were at on the previous slide. So making sure those are um, consistent. And you look at icon weights, your middle icon here is much heavier than your two side icons. So thinking about stuff like that, I think layout wise, you had a lot of good breathing space. So that's really good and, and balanced with your screens. Just taking a, a more look at the, the consistency aspect. And I also wrote a note about the layout of your persona info. So making sure that it's easy to read and your screen layout looks balanced. I really like that you outlined the goals that you made after you talked to your users. I actually wish you talked about your users first. So after you talked about your client and what the problem was going to be, I would, I think I was expecting to hear, okay, I decided to find out who the customers were and, and, but you had started with competitors. So I wonder if just switching that might make your story a little bit stronger. So you can talk about the customers and then you can say, and then let me see what the customer, what else, what the competitors are doing and group that with, what was the thing you said after that? Oh, and the, um, I feel like I should have, oh, and your, uh, heuristic evaluation. So it's like you looked at your competitors and then you looked at the current site that kind of work is uh, more grouped together when you think of the mm. design process. Yeah, I did like your before and after. I know that you asked about this a little bit in the prompt. I think annotating it would help a lot. So if you show like before and after, but like this, the photo is now bigger, like that nearby and show what the differences are. And we can see those, but it's nice that you can talk about the reasoning behind each of those. And it's easy for somebody to just glance at and know what you're talking about. But yeah. I, I really liked your story and I think it was a, a good project to show. 
Thank you. Can I ask you a couple of questions about what you had just feedbacked to me? Yes. Okay. I have two questions. One is, how would I measure, know that I did the right thing? I, in that particular case, I would talk about my usability test results and how successful they were, like maybe more metrics on, I tested six people and all six, that sort of thing. Does that, is there something additionally that you would? So, so that's great for measuring for yourself. You're like, yes, I'm moving in the right direction. But how would you measure it once it's out? I think the client will want to know how to. Oh, okay. So here's my, how I would measure when it's out. And then I'd love to hear what you think of this is because it's not out yet of what I envision, what, what I predict will happen is that individual sales transactions will increase based on this in addition to the potential for increase in sales overall. But I think individual transactions will increase because it's easier for people to make their purchases and make buy multiple things on their purchase because of the stuff I went over. That's awesome. You should have a slide that says the hypothesis. And because that's something everybody's going to ask. But I thought, I think that's very thoughtful. And then my other question about, for example, like annotating the slides to show, I have such trouble with these presentations. My presentations are like really hard for me, obviously. I let everyone do less, put less, talk it over. Don't have the people don't want to read. So when I'm doing presentation, is it partially you say that because it's on Zoom? And so you're looking at that, not me. It probably it looks at different in my portfolio and like probably there's a that's a whole other beast but for this presentation how do you suggest I know like when is enough stuff on the slide and when should I be pairing back like any tips on that yeah one thing is when you're doing a presentation like this don't think of your slides as static pages static streams so if you want to talk about the overall and then you want to hit enter and then dim everything else except for the item you're talking about that may feel like another slide, but it'll look like the same slide, if that makes sense. So kind of thinking about those types of elements, can you add some focus to your screens? But don't show it all at once. So good call out. You don't want to add a ton of stuff on the screen, but maybe adding some of those focus screens during throughout your presentation. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you. I appreciate it. This was really good. I hate doing this, but you are also nice. So it's really good. <laughs> well, you did a great job. Thank you. Actually, uh, because I messed up, my apologies. Do you want us to ask like uh, behavioral interview questions that would come up? Usually you would do like a one-on-one or four-to-one interviews after your presentation. Yeah. We have some more time because one of the presenters isn't here okay. unless he joined, but I don't see John on the call. We could totally take some extra time. Awesome. Uh, Joey, do you want to go first or should I? Sure. So Kelly, what is your, in like throughout the experience, I know you talked a little bit about this, but what is your, your strongest like strength? And then what is an area you want to grow in? Yeah. As shown like in, when I was working with cork and cloth, I think my strongest area is going back to those goals and making sure the decisions that I'm making are on align with those goals. And I can actually bring them to Lisa as well of if she was feeling iffy about something or had a concern about something, I could represent that information to her as a reminder. And so if she was having trouble deciding on something as well as just listening to her and what she needed so that I could advocate for the user with her in mind, I felt was really like a, something that came naturally to me. And 
what took me a while was learning not to follow con- trends. So Shopify has so many cool plugins, but a lot of them aren't good for accessibility. A lot of them aren't legible, not just for like older people, but younger people all over the place. They're cool to look at, but they're not very functional. And so sifting through those is something that I'm constantly improving is just learning more. Like I, with this particular project was the first time I had learned about Baymart Institute. And I just dive into that of learning best practices. And so just continuous improvement in that regard. Good. That sounds great. Kelly? Love that you said Baymart Institute. Also, it's good that you called out, you like to continuously improve. So that's yeah. something I, I like to look forward to. Actually, on that note, having done this project, if you could go back, is there anything you would do differently? What I have now that I lacked in the beginning of this project was confidence that it took me like speed. So just that, conti- again, just doing the same thing over and over again. I've done a couple of other small business websites since then. And I know right away, like the order that I want to be doing things in, how to defend myself when when someone's going a little slow and I need to hold them back into it. A lot of the time people are really interested in working with their websites, but in order to get them like prioritizing the right things of how they want more customers or keeping their goals in mind. So just what would I do differently? I think I just would get faster at this stuff. It took Some things just took me a while. And so I'd be able to do it more quickly the next time. Oh, you, I heard Baymart Institute. Is there any other sources where you find inspiration or improve your UX skills? For high level UX and design thinking, I love listening to podcasts. So I like Design Matters with Debbie Millman. And I like the one by the Envision guys, Design Better. And I get a lot of really high level stuff. But honestly, because my weak spot is UI, I also cruise dribble because I know that I want things to be functional, but I need to make things more beautiful too so that they're eye appealing. And so this balance of like really nuanced daily UI challenges with some just big picture stuff I find really helpful. Good, yes. Only use dribble for the visual stuff because there's no actual substance there. But there's a lot of really good looking things. So you, you get that. Yeah. Thank you very much. Wow. Thanks. Great job. Seriously. Yeah. That was awesome. And thank you guys so much for the awesome feedback. Let's uh, jump into Matthew. Do you have your presentation ready? I do. Yeah. Awesome. Let me share my screen. And as I'm pulling this up, just to set the table, my name is Matthew. I've been transitioning into UX design now for the past couple months. And as I mentioned earlier, my background is actually in architecture. And I've been working in architecture for about the past 10 years. And as I've been working through that transition with a mentor, I've been doing some UX case studies, learning some of the new programs like Figma and Sketch. And in future interviews, I would plan to present more UX case studies. Today, I really wanted to use this time to get some focused feedback on essentially how to present myself and some of my prior work under the lens of UX. And so I'm going to present three examples that in my opinion, hopefully give a view into my own design process and how I think. Hold this up. Okay. In regards to my own background, in my experience with architecture, I believe that architecture and UX actually has a lot of very similar goals. We both need to understand our user and that takes a lot of shapes. How you find the product, how do you feel welcome when you first start? What steps do you take when the product is used? Where does it take you? Where does it lead you? And where is there confusion? Where do you find pain points? And to design with all of this, we need to research and understand human behavior. And in architect, understanding the user is 
certainly part of the entire process, but the active work within that is actually, from what I have experienced, really only a small part of an overall project. We spend a lot of time documenting and managing the construction. And so when you look at a typical UX process, and I know this is a little reductive, but there's a lot more emphasis on understanding the user and time for testing and evaluation. And that's really where I prefer to spend my own time. And obviously a building, you can't really go back and rebuild once you finish it. Within UX and the virtual environment, you can have a little bit more leeway. So the first of the projects I wanted to present is the Richard Boulevard office complex. And this was a project for the state of California. And it's an office complex the size of a city block. And this office is actually to be filled by 5,000 employees and a large number of visitors each day. It's designed to be a hub for their office, but also their lives outside of it. So we had to integrate a childcare center, a cafeteria, and a gym among all these other amenities. And the problem that I faced was, you know, how can we better understand the needs of over 5,000 kind of employees and visitors? And my role on this was as a design lead in the initial concept phase. And for the process we ended up using to evaluate the users actually ended up becoming one of the main reasons that I'm here today, because we focused on utilizing some core UX processes, both personas and some detailed journey maps. And so myself, along with some of our teammates, compiled over 25 personas to include employees, visitors, on-site delivery, uh, and accessibility mean, or accessibility needs, as well as many more items. And Alyssa on the screen here, she worked in the building and utilized the childcare facility. Her journey had to take her into account of getting dropped off and allowing her a shorter walk into the childcare center. Chris, an employee, biked to work every day. And so it really brought up the question to us of where the best location and visibility of the bike storage room was. Bay and Roxy also had to travel to the facility to, to use one of the public interaction counters, but it brought up basically a focus on where we needed to figure out how to create wayfinding needed for visu visually impaired individuals that would, in this case, be traveling by light, light rail. And Hector's delivery here, a humorous piece of clip art, was actually really helpful for our team because it helped us really map out the operations of the back of house areas. And all of this information really helped us look into important adjacencies and brought to light all these unidentified issues in the concept phase before they became a much bigger problem. And more than that, they served as a really strong communication tool that we used with them. And so this image is from a client workshop where I shared this user-centered process with the client. And so I tacked all of these personas on the wall and actually used yarn to connect them to the larger drawings to show where they're at in the project and what their, their route was. And it was just the, a really cool experience for me because as I was taking people through the personas, I was getting these like really funny questions like, oh, that's too far of a walk for Alyssa or, hey, how is Hector's box getting from like the loading dock to the eighth floor? How long does that take? And during this project, I was really starting to dig into UX processes that to help inform my own studies. And it was really from this experience that I became really interested in considering UX as a career path. The next project I want to talk about is the Bechtel residence at Caltech. This is, Caltech is a school in Pasadena and the residence was a new residence hall for the stu undergraduate students there. And the problem I faced was, you know, how do you design a better residential experience for a typical Caltech students? And my role on this project was very specifically to research student life, to understand what was successful in their current experience and, and what was not. And 
Caltech resident life culture is very unique for an American university. They follow a house system very similar to Oxford or Cambridge in the UK, where a majority of the students during their freshman year, they join what's called a house. And it serves as their social group, their physical residence. And according to a lot of the students I spoke with, it actually defined their social identity. And it's upwards of about 85 to 90% of the undergraduate student body joined this house system. And so when we started to look through the resident's life, we started actually with student guided tours of the current facilities to understand what they were working with. And the students very enthusiastically took us through a day in their life. But what you see here is some of the living quarters. Uh, and it shows where students utilize public lounges as like gathering spaces. They moved furniture around, they set up gaming areas. They even painted murals in their hallways, which again, the right. And they found it as a way to personalize their space, but also really to encourage social interaction. Dining halls, you know, every weekday evening, these houses would gather for a family style meal, almost like Hogwarts. And this was really an opportunity for all the students to be together at one. And each house had their own secure exterior space. And because it's Southern California, these were actually incredibly active during the day with sporting events or projects that the students were taking on. And so following the tours, although I, I felt like we had a better grasp of student life, there were still a lot of unanswered questions. So I put together a series of prompts for an open discussion at a workshop with student leadership. And the idea was to hopefully better understand what is important to them, what is a successful residence life experience? Questions like how important is your connection to outdoors? How often do you cook for yourself? And where do you prefer to study in a shared area or in the privacy of your own room? And through these workshops, three concepts became really clear to us. And, and you see an example here, we were writing on the whiteboard as we were talking through things and there were all kinds of crazy things thrown out. But the three kind of guiding principles that we ended up with from these meetings was essentially student lounges, the lounges that allowed multifunctionality, like games, table space, whiteboards, they were always the most active. And so here you see where we combine kitchen space with lounge space and study space to help activate these areas. The dining hall, the students told us connectivity is really key and dining was really described as the heart of the student life culture. And so we designed the space with basically visibility on three sides. So as the activity of dinner was happening, it pushed out into the other areas around the, the residence hall. And roommate preferences, the students wanted options. Some students preferred smaller suites, singles, two or three roommates, but others were actually really excited by the prospect of a more shared social experience. And so what in the image is actually a 12 person suite that we designed for the students. And it's actually been one of the fastest to fill up since the projects opened. And so really this project early in my career, it taught me about the importance of research and how early on it can really drive the design. And I, to me, it was really interesting to see how kind of the research as it was brought into the design really made everything feel more human. It felt less like a, a building and more like an actual experience for the students. And so the final project I want to share is something I did for the Phoenix Suns and Phoenix Mercury. It was a basketball training facility. And this project had a really specific problem, but how can you design for the unique experience of a professional athlete and what actually are those requirements? And so early on our team, we sat with the owner, Robert Sarver and players like Devin Booker, among others, really to gain a perspective on pro sports from those on the inside, we discussed 
typical practice days, training regimens, player hobbies. Video gaming was a really big one. We actually also interviewed our own colleagues, not just with sporting experience, but you know, with office experience and even healthcare, trying to bring in really new ideas across different disciplines. And it was through these early conversations that we basically set two priorities. Function for on days and off days, it should be a place where players feel like they want to be even if they don't have to go to practice. And it had to address issues with the current existing Can I ask you? Yeah. Sorry to interrupt you. Are at time. So if you can oh. wrap up maybe in the next 30 seconds. Sorry about that. No, it's okay. Basically, all I want to do here. So you know, we took a lot of this and we, again, put through like a first person perspective of what the journey would be for a professional players are going through. And for us, this was, again, a really good way to communicate what was going on with the client. And you know, one of the most interesting things is NBA players are really big. And it was something that we often take for granted is like the size of a sink or a toilet. And so on this project, we went through and actually we created full-size mock-ups. So the players gave us a lot of feedback as to what was too tall, what was too short. And we did these like full-size printouts in our office to get that feedback. And then what I'll end on is like the amount of stuff we had to custom make for basically the size of this, you know, it really for me was interesting because it was just basically all these things I took for granted. The height of a toilet was something that we had to rethink. And it, so it always sticks with me that what works for me or your general user is not really working for everyone. But okay, so we're at the end. Again, like, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. I'm very excited about potential future UX and look forward to hearing everyone's thoughts. Thanks. So I was trying to do a, an emoji reaction. And <laughs> uh, thanks, Matthew. That was really nice. I really liked how, oh, wait, we're supposed to be asking questions. I'm questions. sorry. <laughs> Jump in with Kelly. How would you change your approach if you had to work through all of the engineering parts? It was architecture projects, but you do, you're part of like making sure things go well, right? Oh yeah, for sure. And engineering in which way? Sorry. The creation of things. I don't know what the, the architecture version of engineering is. It's a really interesting question. I, I think... For me, the thing that's missing, and it's part of the reason why I'm interested in UX design, but a lot of this stuff sometimes gets left behind the further you get into a project, right? And so a typical architecture project could be like two or three years. And my work is often on the front end, which I really enjoy, but as it falls through and budgets become real, time schedule becomes real, some of this stuff gets lost. And I think when it comes to like how to engineer stuff, it it's almost like, I almost wish I was able to document some of this stuff even more early on so it could be shared throughout the entire project team. So when you start thinking about how systems work, how the coordination works, you really want some of that user feedback in that, even if it's not always the most appropriate. Yeah. Yes. That makes sense. Um, just like there's something you could say too is in an agency world, you don't get to always be involved in engineering. If you're working in-house, it's great because you can, but you could end up in a similar situation where you can't. The, the way to do that, and I'm glad that you mentioned it, is really just like really good documentation. That's how you head up to make sure they know exactly what your vision is, what you expect, and maybe showing like a screen or two of what that would look like. And I think my question is, what about the UX process interests you? I know you're transitioning from architecture. Uh, is there a specialty you're looking for or a generalist? It's a good question. It's something I've actually been thinking about a lot. I'm, for me, I'm really interested in the user research portion of it and trying to understand. I really enjoy putting personas together and understanding how those translate to the final product. Excuse me. And I think just 
by nature, architects are somewhat generalists for better or worse. And so I, I'm trying to fight that feeling a little bit and figure out where my focus should be. I, I think I, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm somewhere in between like project designer or, or UX designer, but I'm still trying to find my way in. Okay. That's great. I th I think that's fair because you're transitioning and, you, and it's a new world. But the reason why I asked that question was a lot of the jobs out there for product designers and UX designers that I know of are usually digital products. And as cool as your projects were, and I was very fascinated by some of the problems you're trying to solve for. But the questions that would come to my mind if you're applying for a digital company is, can this person do the job yeah. as a generalist? If you're interviewing for a user research role, that's completely different, right? Then you can focus on the, the research methodologies, like interviews and things like that. But if you are going for the research route, depending on the company, they may require a PhD. There's a lot more uh, educational background that a lot of companies look for if you want to go that route. Not all companies, but if you don't have that PhD, they may look for experience in the field, but it's kind of the chicken or the egg question. How yeah. do I get experience if I don't get the job? But yeah. I think if you you were presenting this as a real project presentation for your portfolio, I would probably ask you a lot more questions about the, the research process part. So if you go back to the beginning of your presentation and you talked about personas, I don't think you talked about how you came up with the personas. Did you interview people? How many people did you interview? What's the mix of the types of participants you talked to? And all of those things to like come up with that final, this asset, right? I think that would be something people would be really interested in, maybe doing some sort of setup slide, but also the why behind this project. I know you started with a problem statement, but like, why are you solving that problem? What is the, the reason that the outcome or the goal that you're hoping for? Like, what were the they're trying to use these maps for. That makes sense. Thank you. Joey, do you want to continue your feedback? Oh, sure. Yes. So generally, I really liked how you set the stage. There was one chart at the beginning that I feel like I got hung up on because I was yeah. thinking about how it ended with, yeah, their evaluation. And really, if you think about the UX process, you're thinking about the whole experience. It also goes into how it's implemented. That is very important how it's implemented because someone can implement it completely different and then your whole design process is out the window, right? Right. Like it has to, the success of your design is really dependent on how it's implemented. And so having something about where it gets implemented, but then also you evaluate if it was implemented to and, and hit the goals that you were shooting for. And then that's like the cycle, right? Because then you understand the user using that product and you go through design iteration, et cetera. So, so cool. So that, that was from the beginning. And then of course, talking more about your personas, how you did the synthesis to become one persona. If you talked to many people, how did you come up with like, this is a single one. And it's just a note here, process is just as important as the output because it backs up how solid the solution is. It's like, you didn't just make up the solution. You actually went through these steps and these are the things you learned throughout it and all of that. That's what people will be looking for. I love that you talked about the experience doing the workshop, how you get to actually see people interact with your things and then learning from that and hearing how your stakeholders were thinking. Those are always great takeaways from workshops. College project. Um, that one was a, another one where it's like, why are you solving this problem? What was the goal of the project? And then 
showing who you talk to, how just all of the validity of the research, the, the methodology that you were using, maybe the types of questions you're asking, were they consistent across all the different people you're asking and all of that. I think that was it for that project. And then Phoenix Suns, I liked how you talked about meeting the client and learning about what they were shooting for. I think that's what I wanted to hear more about in the other projects. And then the goals you created from that. Yeah, I don't know. I didn't actually write anything else about that project, but oh, that's right. We didn't get to finish it, but yeah, overall, I really liked how you connected our architecture projects with UX. That's very relevant. We actually have a lot of people in the UX industry that comes from architecture because it's very similar, right? You're designing for the user, you're designing for an experience that's physical that that could easily relay over to digital and thinking about how that would like interactions and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. I would have to say, so usually in an interview, they'll have a rubric of things that they want to hear from a presenter. So from your, from a craft perspective, I was very impressed. I, I don't know if you illustrated those. Did you illustrate the humans and? Ah, okay. <laughs> I need to. It, it's, yeah. Time was not in the cards this week for that, but yes. No worries, no worries. But I, I thought the craft was there. Your title, uh, even the footer and the way you laid out your slides, it was good. Thank and you. yeah. Uh, and I like that you had personas. I was user-centric. I think my feedback for the first one was 25 personas for 5,000 people is too many personas. Part of the job of the research, there's so much data out there, but part of the researcher's job is to synthesize that and bring the data that will make an impact on the product. And 25 is too many for us to focus, us designers who have a lot going on. And I would say for, for improvement, big picture first, I think timing, I know you only had 10 minutes, but you need to be super aware of your time and yeah. what you can show within that time because if you go over or you go way under it'll show that you didn't really get to practice your presentation and yeah so i would just be super aware of time practice your presentation a bit i really i'm sorry i'm going back and forth in the pros and cons i like that you started off with i have architecture background and these are similarities i definitely felt connected with you and you were memorable. I like the comparison you made architecture methodologies versus user design methodologies. But one thing that stood out to me was design documentation and architecture that yeah. this exists in our process too. It, we call it specs when you're specking out your user interface. Uh, we also have uh, design systems. If you go to a larger company, that requires a lot of documentation. There's a lot of product documents, uh, feature goals and things like that. There's tons of documentation. So I would just be careful when you make the comparison. Yes. Awesome. Okay. Uh, just wanted to chime in. We are at time. Do you oh, have one more piece of feedback, Kelly? Just to, to keep. I would, I think the biggest thing I could help you with is there's an acronym called STAR. It's a way of storytelling that is very succinct. And a lot of tech companies use that formula is called situation, task, action, results. And that will help you with the framing of your storytelling to be impactful and resonate. Great. Awesome. Awesome job, Matthew. And thank you guys, Joey and Kelly, for just providing super good feedback there. I'm glad that we actually had a little extra time because there was just so much to, to mention about each of these presentations. I wanted to just say that this was a really awesome event. I wanted to 
see if anyone had any questions from the audience to the reviewers or just about the presentations they saw today. We do have a little bit of time for that. And if there are no questions, we'll just jump into providing the feedback survey for you guys to complete. But yeah, does anyone have any questions for either the reviewers or the presenters from the audience? Can I just put a plug in? Sorry. <laughs> Redfin is hiring for anyone who's... Wait, Realtor.com is hiring. <laughs> Place first. <laughs> I'm putting the link in the chat. Oh my God. All right. We have a shameless plug in the chat. All right. I have a question about the intro slides and I see what they are now that Matthew had presented them. Um, of, hey, here's who I am. When I've done a presentation like this in an interview, it's after I've already been asked a lot of questions. And so it feels, is that still appropriate? It's like just a little reminder. It could be very brief. Yeah. Yeah. I usually have a one slider, at least just humanizes you. And the people you do a phone interview with may be different from the people in the room and things like that. Joey, you're on mute. Sorry. You can do more than one slide. I know like you can, the minimum would be to do a slide, but it's always nice to hear who you are, what you're looking for, and then maybe a little bit about like the, the your background and your something that's not work related to round you out th thinking about that. Yeah. Awesome. We actually have a, a question in the chat from Seha. I'm sorry if I mispronounced your name. Do you want to ask this question live? You're still on the call. If not, I could just read it out. Um, it's. Does not having, oh, sorry. I was eating dinner, my bad. <laughs> yeah, just watching, but yeah. So I don't have a degree, but I'm supposed to be entering the job uh, market right now. And I was wondering if not having a degree in anything, if it's a setback or like an obstacle by any chance. So the only person that you would have to get through would be the initial recruiter. So recruiters have their own personal things that they look for, but for emerging talent and design, I don't think a degree is required. I mean, really, it certainly helps. It gives you all of the basics that you need and it makes it a little bit easier. But if you don't have it, you can just have to make sure you have a good portfolio and that you really convey that you are a, you have a learner's mindset, you want to learn on the job and you have a lot of potential to do really well, as long as you're able to get into the environment and, and get, you know, the opportunity to work on projects. So there are a diff there's a different rubric when you're looking at people who are just entering the industry and don't have a degree. Plus one to what Joey said, except for research. That is the one where they may require mm. uh, higher education. Yes. Research. Unless you have just tons of experience. Yeah. That was another question I was going to ask. So if, for example, if you're in an interview and I'm, I came from a bootcamp recently, like a design bootcamp. So obviously I don't have much experience for UX design. If the interviewer were to ask a question like that, how much years of experience you have, or it says you don't really have much experience, like what would be like a good response to that, those kind of questions? Really? <laughs> that's a good question. I was there uh, when I first started. I took a boot camp, and that's how I transitioned. For me, I took freelance jobs wherever I could. I created jobs for myself. You could create your own projects and just go through the process. So you have a portfolio piece. You can make, you fake it till you make it. And then eventually find someone who's, yeah, this person needs to join the team and then you'll be able to join. But basically your portfolio is king or queen. That's the thing they're going to be looking at. 
And whether it's okay. a project or not, they're going to want to meet with you or not based off of that. Yeah. Do, do what Kelly's doing. Take a bunch of side projects and get, get whatever you can because all of that experience is going to be helpful. But and it's also okay to interview now. Like you can say you don't have any experience yet, but you do have experience working on this project and this side project. Just bring up some of that stuff. One quick follow-up question. I feel like in a lot of these settings where people are giving recommendations, they consistently mention taking on like freelance work and side projects. But sometimes I, I feel like a lot of people don't mention how they went about getting those side projects themselves. I know there's a ton of like marketplaces now where you can go and people post either like RFPs essentially, and they can go in and say, I need this done. And then you can post yourself as a designer with a profile and ratings and then apply for that. But for someone, maybe say, uh, for example, who doesn't have that experience, like how would you recommend they go about trying to get freelance work to build up that credibility? It's a great call out. I'm an introvert. So I go to tons of networking events and that's where I got all of my side projects. You meet people who are working on things or have projects or they know somebody who owns a dentistry and wants a dentist website. It is one of the real projects that I had to do. And so like meeting people, you can do it online. You can sign up for all of the non-work slacks if you've seen those or discords or whatnot and meet people to do projects with. If you want like a paid internship is another great one is you get paid. It is a job, but you're the expectation is there that you're there to learn. Kelly, you are an extrovert, so don't you dare. You're more extroverted than me. For people who are not extroverts, I always say this, like you, there, there are ways to do everything online. Like you can meet people online, you can type it up, you never have to talk to them and, you know, over voice or anything like that. You can just post your profile, send your portfolio out. A lot of it also could just be unofficial projects you don't get paid for that's most people can't do that so that is something that you have to recognize that very few people are able to do but if it's like your cousin wants a project do that project and learn how it would be to have a family member as a client which i do not recommend never do that but actually i think on that note kelly put a catch a fire.com volunteer projects yes. a lot of nonprofits are looking for ux help that's a great thanks kelly Great. Any other questions? I also just, I, it's a shameless plug for sure, but I'm going to put our the Product Hive Slack in the chat just only, only because there are so many channels out there with a community of just thousands of people that we even have, I think, like a jobs channel as well. So there are a lot of resources on there and parking what Joey said about if it's, especially now, it's harder to go to in-person events. The Slack channel is even more of a useful resource now because you can still connect with people really at any time. So would also encourage that, say, huh, if you're not already a part of the product type Slack. Take the time to meet people. It's, it's something that people say, and I've always hated it when people tell you that, like, you just need a network. It is important. If you, you've ever heard of awesome design people, awesome people list, awesome design people list, <laughs> sorry, I should know this. You can sign up for mentor mentors, meet mentors. You can sign up to be a mentee, or you can, if you want to mentor other people, that's a great way to meet people. In these slacks, those are great, especially something like product type, where you can meet product people and you can meet other people in the product area so that you're not two designers working on a project. You're someone who's like a product person and a design person. And then that way you get both sides of the project. What are the business things that you need to know? And also what are the user things? You get diversity in the type of people that you meet. Oh, okay. It's called ADP list. ADP list. I'll post it. 
which is awesomedesignpeoplelist.com. And if you go in, you can select the expertise. So there's design, marketing, PMs, and you can choose like what you're hoping to do. What kind of, what mentorship do you need? Are you trying to just get career advice? Do you just want to find a job or do you need mentorship and just like long-term mentorship? And then it'll filter down the list and you can meet any of these people. You can book them right on the site and it's free. Awesome. Thank you so much. I was loving that discussion. I just wanted to uh, thank the wonderful presenters for preparing those great presentations. It's a very nerve wracking experience to do something like that and did require work up front. So really appreciate you guys doing that. Also, Joey and Tiffany, oh, Kelly, sorry, for just taking time out of it. <laughs> they're both calling from Austin. So they have a bit of a time, two hour time difference. So they're staying up late, helping out. But I just, they did such an incredible job. And I'm so happy you guys did this. You really helped make this awesome. A big thanks to Kelly Kim and Joey Chung for presenting. And again to Lucid for sponsoring the event. If you learned some things from their discussion, be sure to share it with your team or share it on Twitter and mention us at product underscore hive. Sharing these talks is a great way to support Product Hive. As always, be sure to check out all our upcoming events. You can find them by searching for Product Hive on meetup.com. And while you're there, go ahead and join the group so you always get the latest updates. We also have a YouTube channel where you can find videos of all the past talks. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in your feed soon, and we'll see you at one of our next events.